Hey there, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're really glad you decided to join us for our study in the Gospel of Mark. We pray that it blesses you and that your mind is blown as you encounter Jesus Christ in a fresh new way. If you're looking for more information about New River Church, just check us out at newriverchurch.org. Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. And I, I want to kick this off this morning with a question while you're looking that up. Um, let's just talk about leadership for a moment. In your experience with leaders, um, what qualities would you say make up a good leader? Yell out, what, what would be the qualities? Humble. In, a what? Humble. Humble. A servant heart. Empowering. Empowering. Somebody who empowers. What's this? Honesty. Honesty. Vision, got to have a vision, yes. Teachable. Loyalty, wow, that's a good one. Trustworthy. Encouraging. Trusting. Communicator, got to be a good communicator. You know, um, have you noticed that we have just described Jesus Christ? You know, we don't often think about Jesus as being a good leader, do we? We tend to... um, this is my word, we've religified Jesus. So we've relegated him to the halls of stained glass windows, and whenever I need forgiveness, well, there's Jesus. But in terms of actually having any value to my everyday life, in terms of actually being someone that might influence my ethics, my morality, the way I manage my money, my marriage, conflict, like, we don't often think about Jesus as having much value in those arenas, do we? And I'm guessing that if, you know, you're at work, if you ever have to go to a leadership seminar, I'm assuming that you've never had a seminar where they've used Jesus as an example of a good leader. Probably not. And yet Jesus is. I I want you to hear this this morning, that Jesus, you know, a lot of us believe in Jesus, but not many of us actually follow him. And there's a difference between believing in Jesus and following him. To follow him says, I acknowledge that he's my leader. And that he's actually, I'm allowing him to influence me. Now, we've been studying in the Gospel of Mark. And we're up to chapter 6. And what we've learned so far is this, that Mark is writing this thing that he calls a gospel. And he's writing to Romans And he's trying to give them a testimony, an accurate testimony of who Jesus is, so that they can see Jesus and know Jesus. And so Mark, to do that, he borrows some language from Rome. He uses this word gospel, which the Romans would have used whenever a new emperor was born. And the word gospel means good news that changes everything. And of course, for the Romans, good news that changes everything for the Roman Empire. But Mark takes this word and he draws from that, borrows it, uses it, and applies it to Jesus. And he declares that Jesus is the gospel. He's the good news that changes everything for everyone. And Mark is setting out to demonstrate that as he writes. And right out of the gate, we notice Jesus steps onto the scene, and he is in charge, isn't he? He exercises absolute authority, authority over the weather, over demons, over sickness, over religion, And last week, we noticed Jesus demonstrates absolute power over death. Not even death shakes Jesus. 
Not even a severely demonized man who couldn't be tied up with shackles shake Jesus. He demonstrates power over all these things. And so, so we see Jesus is powerful, but you understand that does not make Jesus a good leader, does it? We've all known plenty of powerful people who might or might not have been in positions of leadership who shouldn't have been, see? So having power and having authority doesn't make Jesus a good leader. Here's a little principle that I'd like us to just stick in our caps, and that's this. You cannot always choose who leads you, but you can choose who you follow. By that, I mean this. You didn't choose your boss, perhaps. Uh, you didn't choose your teacher, your professor. You, 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 may, you may or may not have voted for our current political leaders, see? But yet, the truth is, these people hold... Let me, how about your parents? You didn't choose your parents. But they, but they have a position of leadership in your life, and according to Scripture, we're commanded to respect that, whether or not I chose them. However... That's different than allowing them to influence me. That's who I follow. See, that's different than, than having someone that I, I look to as a leader, someone who actually I permit them to influence my values, my convictions, my ethics, my morality. Jesus is powerful. Mark has demonstrated that. And there are few people who would dispute the impact that Jesus Christ of Nazareth has had on the history of the world. But you and I still need to answer this question. Will I let him influence me? Will I follow him? Is he someone that I would want to speak into like the deepest things of my life and influence my daily life? Do you see this difference? Do you see what I'm talking about? And this is where Mark brings us in chapter 6. Because here we find Mark doing something brilliant. And I love how he does this. Mark draws out a contrast in chapter 6 between two leaders. Between King Herod and Jesus. You couldn't find two more opposite leaders. Herod is a political leader. He's ruling over Palestine during the ministry of Jesus. So they are contemporaries, and they're both leading, and they both have influence, and they were both men, but that's where the similarities stop. You could not find two more different men, two more different kinds of leaders. And Herod represents the kind of leader that you and I have all come to expect. He really is. Our newspapers are filled every day with the failures and the corruption of leaders. We've like become so used to corrupt leaders that we're jaded almost. And we have a hard time believing that someone could actually lead me with integrity. So please hang on. Because by the time we finish chapter 6, I pray and I hope that you see that Jesus is exactly the leader that you have been looking for all of your life. Notice how Mark 6 opens. Jesus goes to his hometown. We're not going to read it all, so I really need you to have your Bible open so you can be following along. We're going to read parts of this, but just for the sake of time, I'm going to skim parts and read other parts. So 
Mark chapter 6 opens with Jesus um, in his own hometown. And he stands up to preach in the synagogue on a lovely Sabbath Saturday morning, and everybody rejects him. How's that for hitting a home run in your hometown? Verse 3 says that, that Jesus is preaching, and the townspeople go, isn't this the carpenter? Like, didn't he fix my table last week? How, how is it that you're the Messiah? And, and don't I, wait a second, don't I know you and, and your brothers and your sisters? And I love how Joseph and Mary must have had, like, they liked the J names. You notice that? James, Joseph, Judas, and then Simon and his sisters. And like, the Messiah doesn't have a family. That, no, nah, no. Nah. And you look at the end of verse 3. It says, and they took offense at him. They were offended by Jesus. Isn't that amazing? And then in verse 4, Jesus noted this, that a prophet is, has no honor in his own hometown. Honor. So Jesus equates their rejection of him to a lack of honor. And this is big because verse 5 tells us Jesus couldn't do any miracles there. So because they don't honor Jesus, Jesus can't do any miracles there. Now you say, wait a second, is that possible that my faith would have that big of an impact on God? Like you're saying that my lack of faith could actually handcuff God and he's not able to do any miracles? No, I'm not saying that because God's sovereign and God's omnipotent and he can certainly uh, break way past your silly little faith. However, honor is important. And here's a little principle. Honor goes up, blessings flow down. And when I refuse to honor someone, I actually cut myself off from being able to receive anything from them. This is a really important principle in all of our relationships. It works in all of them. I've seen this happen many times as a pastor over the years in ministry. Some people, whether they come, you come here to our church from another church, or they leave here and go to another church. It happens all the way around. But I've heard, I've heard it said, well, you know, I, I left that church because I just wasn't getting fed there anymore. And, and she asked, well, wait a second, is the pastor not preaching the Bible anymore? Like, what's he doing? Is he using, you know, a magazine or something to preach? No, he's, no, he's still preaching the word. Like, so, so what changed? Well, you see, here's what happens. I take offense, and it doesn't, have to be a, it doesn't have to be a major offense. It doesn't have to be something glaring and bad. I take offense at something. Then that reduces my honor of that person, which then impedes my ability to receive anything from that person. So offense, lacking honor, cutting off the blessing. Um, it works in marriage. The first step that a married couple takes to divorce court is withholding honor from your spouse. Because the things that you used to think were cute become annoying. And they become really annoying. And next thing you know, you begin to hold an offense because they say and they do things. And then that reduces honor. And then before too long, you, decide, you have a hard time finding anything to be positive about. And then before too long, 
it's not a far decision, and not far before you make the decision to just end it. See, do you want to bless your marriage? Here's a little marriage tip from Mark chapter 6. You want to bless your marriage? Honor your spouse. Just wake up in the morning, man, God, I'm so thankful for her. She is such an amazing woman. I'm grateful for her, right? God, I, God I'm so thankful for him. What a man. He really is. I, I love how he serves us. I love how he gives to us. I love how I love his strength. Like you just, I'm serious. I'm not being at all goofy, at all goofy. You think that's, that's so simple. Yeah, it'll revolutionize your marriage. Just simply honoring. When I give honor to someone, I open myself up to be able to receive from them. See, this is part of the problem in our culture, isn't it? With our focus on celebrities, we honor these men and women. Uh, we, we buy their clothing brands. We follow their social media. And then it's not long before we begin to believe what they believe more than believing in what God says. Why? Because we've actually given more honor to celebrities than we have to the God of the universe. No wonder we're so screwed up. It's the blind leading the blind. And this is just how it works. When you honor someone, you open yourself up to receive from them. So Jesus' hometown refused to honor Jesus. And as a result, they couldn't receive any miracles. Which is amazing, isn't it? Because we talked last week, Jesus is doing amazing miracles, isn't he? You got a woman chronically bleeding, touched the hem of his robe, healed, dead being raised. So it's not like Jesus lacks the power to do these things. These people don't honor him, and they completely miss the blessing. Now you say, well, why would Mark do this? Why would Mark start chapter 6 this way? For two reasons. Number one, it demonstrates to us that this is an authentic representation of the life and the times of Jesus Christ. Because if Mark was trying to sell us on Jesus... You, you don't talk about the negative. You don't talk about Jesus' bad day, right? This is how you sell things. I, I sell things by emphasizing the positive and minimizing the negative, right? I say to you, this soap, it'll change your life, right? You don't say, you don't say hey, I used this soap and all my hair fell out and I sprouted a third eyeball, but you know, you ought to try it. It might work for you. I don't know. Like, that's not how you sell stuff. So Mark is not selling us on Jesus, he gives us the accurate, he gives us the truth of like, hey, this happened. Jesus goes to his own hometown, and his own hometown folk rejected him. They didn't buy in. And that's the second reason, I think, why Mark gives us this. It's because it, it, it gives you and me the opportunity to make an authentic decision for ourselves. You know, Mark's not like trying to shove Jesus down your throat. He's saying, look, it, here's the deal. Jesus is pretty amazing. But there were some people that didn't believe in him. What about you? And I love that, that Mark would give us the freedom to do that. And you know, I can just say that to you this morning. We give you the freedom here at New River Church to have your questions. We don't, we're not trying to force you into some mold and you know, look just like this. You're, you're, you're more than free to come and bring your questions, and we would encourage that. Like, take them to your life group. Ask them. Throw them out. You know, it's okay, to, it's okay to question and to wrestle. We can wrestle together, can't we? Amen, New River Church? We can wrestle together. So, so listen, your, your doubts, they don't scare us off, okay? They really don't. And we're here with you, and we'll walk together with you. And 
I love that because Mark gives us that in chapter 6. So then Jesus has this, you know, failure, if you will, in his hometown. What happened? What does Jesus do? Does Jesus exercise his power and say, I curse you all. I call down fire from heaven and, you know, and does Jesus condemn these people for that? No, not at all. In fact, he, he simply moves on. Mark chapter 6 continues into verse 7. It says, Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village, calling the twelve to him. He began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. I don't know why he says that, but wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They went out and they preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and they anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. So do you see what Jesus does fresh from bombing out in his hometown? Jesus divests his power and his authority, and he gives it to his disciples. And he takes these 12 men, and he breaks them up two by two. So now he has six teams of two, and they are now going out around the area, and they are using the power and the authority that Jesus has given to them, and they're doing the same miracles that Jesus did. That's refreshing, you know, because oftentimes when we get power, we tend to keep it. We tend to use it for ourselves. We don't share it. Here's Jesus having, having power, and he gives it away. He doesn't use it to manipulate. He doesn't use it to control. He doesn't use it to maintain that power. He freely shares it. Isn't that something? Rarely do we know of someone who obtains a position of power or obtains power, and they actually use that power to elevate and empower others. Okay, we're beginning, beginning to see that Jesus is a different type of leader, are we not? Jesus is launching a movement, which means that as a leader, he's completely unlike Herod. And that's where we go next, verses 14 through 29. I won't read this for the sake of time, but if you have your Bible open in your laps, you can follow along. Let me just summarize the story. So now Mark takes us to Herod. So here's Jesus, ready? Rejected at his hometown and doesn't fry them. Instead, takes his power and his authority, shares that with his disciples, and they begin to go out and they're doing miracles all over the place. And now Mark takes us over to Herod. Let's talk about Herod for a second. Herod called himself King Herod. We use king in air quotes because he was not actually a king. He was more like a governor. Because at this time, Palestine is ruled by Rome. So Caesar is the king. Okay. However, Herod calls himself king after his father. His father was Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the Herod who ruled Palestine when Jesus was born. He's the guy that's responsible for killing all the baby boys in Bethlehem. You know that as part of the Christmas story. That's Herod the Great. That's Herod's dad. 
Now, Herod the Great was a master politician, manipulative. He's quite a study for any psychologist, a good time. And then Herod, he dies, and his three goober sons take over. And they are not nearly as bright as their father are. The father was. And so they can't maintain that whole region. So instead, the region gets split up three ways. And you have Herod, who calls himself King Herod. You have Antipas. And you have Philip. All right? Nice dysfunctional family. Now, Herod falls in love with his brother Philip's wife. Her name is Herodias. They have a have a little fling, and he ends up stealing her from his brother Philip and marrying her. Okay. You, you try, you're like, wow, I think I saw that on Jerry Springer. Yeah, that's like, yeah, absolutely. So he ends up marrying his brother's wife, Herodias. Now she has a daughter. Okay, so now this daughter would be Herod's niece, but now she's also Herod's stepdaughter. Track it. So now Herod has this party. Now, now here's the deal. Herod, the, John the Baptist, is publicly criticizing Herod and Herodias for their bastard marriage, which, of course, gets him in a lot of trouble. So Herod throws John the Baptist in jail. But we learn that Herod kind of liked John. He was sort of fascinated by John. He would listen to John. But Herodias nursed a pretty serious grudge against John the Baptist. And her opportunity came the night that Herod has a wild party for all of his rich friends, and they're drunk, and check this out, Herodias' daughter, Herod's niece-slash-stepdaughter, dances seductively for Herod and his friends. And Herod is so turned on by this that he promises to give her anything she wants up to half of his kingdom. I'm telling you, you thought your family was dysfunctional, Right? So Herodias uses this opportunity to exact her revenge against John the Baptist. And so she counsels her daughter to ask King Herod to give her the head of John the Baptist immediately. And so Herod, not wanting to embarrass himself in front of all of his drunk friends, went ahead and made the ruling, and John the Baptist was immediately executed that night. And his head is brought to his Sick wife as a gift, I guess. Now, why does Mark tell us this? A couple of reasons. Look at verse 14. King Herod heard about, remember Jesus sent all the boys out, and they're doing their ministry, and they're doing miracles all around, so they're shaking things up. Verse 14, King Herod heard about this. For Jesus' name had become well-known. Some were saying John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that's why miraculous powers are at work. Others said he must be Elijah, and still others claimed he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, verse 16, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. So King Herod thinks he's got a ghost on his hands. The ghost of John the Baptist is haunting my kingdom. And why would King Herod be thinking that? Well, because of what he did. This is what Mark is telling us. See, it makes sense, sort of, kind of, in a twisted way. And, but, the, but the big story is this. Look at the kind of leader that Herod is. You notice? He's the kind of leader that you and I 
are certainly accustomed to. He uses his power for self-advancement. He uses his position to make himself more comfortable. He uses his power to gain more power, to protect his power. He has very little concern for human life, for anyone other than his own. I mean, think about it. Just in the name of not wanting to embarrass himself in front of his drunk friends, he literally kills a man. See, this is the kind of leader that Herod is. If you think about this, this would be like a, a flashback. Like if this was a movie, this would be a flashback, wouldn't it? Like, like Mark is telling us this story, and he goes, there's all these rumors floating around. This must be the, this must be the ghost of John the Baptist doing all these miracles. And, and you can picture Herod in the palace tapping his fingers on the table like, wow, I wonder what's going on. This must be the ghost. I'm getting haunted. I know why I'm getting haunted. And then the camera takes you into Herod's mind, and it flashes you back to why Herod feels like he's haunted, because he did this to John the Baptist. And then the camera pans back out again, and you come to the disciples returning from their mission trip to report to Jesus all of the things that happened. And this is verse 30. The apostles gathered around Jesus, and they reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they didn't even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So you see what Jesus is doing. He has his disciples. They come back from their mission trip. It's really awesome. Jesus wants to debrief with the guys, but he can't do that, can he? Because the crowd is too intense. People are chasing after him. People are coming and going. And Jesus is like, we got to get a quiet spot. Because I've got to be able to talk with you about your mission trip, about what happened. These men were doing incredible miracles. It would stand to reason that they would need a chance to talk through that with Jesus. And this is part of Jesus being a good disciple maker. This is how you make a disciple, isn't it? You give them responsibility. You say, hey, why don't you try this? And they go out and they do it, and then you debrief with them. A life group leader, that's how you, that's how you raise up a new life group leader. You, you give someone the chance to lead the meeting this week. And then after the meeting, you get together with them, and you say, so how'd that go? Let's, let's talk through that. How was that. What was that like for you? You debrief with them. That's just a natural part of disciple-making. This is what Jesus is doing. He's training up his guys, and he's giving them some experience. They're getting some, you know, just stretching their wings a little bit, and then Jesus follows up with them. But he can't do that, can he? Because the crowd won't let him. Verse 34 tells us that Jesus then gets the disciples in a boat. By the time they get in their boat and they get to the spot where they want to go to get some quiet to talk, what happens? The crowd figures out where they are. And the crowd chases them, and the crowd meets them there. The crowd beats Jesus to the spot. Isn't that crazy? And so by the time Jesus lands on the shore, well, there's all the people. Hey, Jesus, we heard we were having another meeting. Now, if you're Jesus in that moment, right, how would you be? Annoyed? I think I might be. You are completely interrupting my schedule. Like, this is not what I, I, I need to debrief with my boys. And you guys are getting in the way. Jesus, I would be annoyed if I was Jesus. I'm just saying, that's me. 
But Jesus is not. Instead, look what he does. Verse 34, it says, When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had a compassion on them. He had compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. Wow. There's two things that we need to say about this verse, okay? First of all, Jesus had compassion. Compassion. Um, Do you know how, like, at work, maybe you've gone to your boss with a question before, but your boss was really busy with something, and your boss uh, was really gruff and treated you gruffly and shooed you away, and you felt about, like, this big? Jesus is not that. Um, you know how, like, as a parent, maybe your child has come, come to you because they just wanted to tell you something, or maybe they just wanted to talk with you, or maybe they had a question about something, but you were stressed out, and you were busy with something, and you really weren't in the mood in that moment, and you, and you shrugged them away, you shooed them away, and you made them feel like about like that small. Yeah, Jesus doesn't do that, does he? Here's Jesus, the most powerful person on the planet. And he has compassion on this crowd who, to you and me, would be very annoying. Do you see how Jesus is a different kind of leader? Psalm 23, verse 1 says, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. See, the quality of your life is directly related to the quality of the one you follow. If Herod is your shepherd, if Herod is your shepherd, or if anyone like him is your shepherd, you will suffer. You will suffer. We, we know Herod. We know he uses his power for self-gratification. He's manipulative. He's controlling. He doesn't value human life. He beheads John the Baptist. Like, what a loser. But if Jesus is your shepherd, you lack nothing. He's compassionate. So my friends, is it time to switch shepherds? What do you think? The world will always have its Herods. I'm not suggesting that you can leave the world and somehow protect yourself from bad leaders because they're all over the place. They're in our schools, our workplaces, our entertainment. They're in our churches. And don't even get me started about politics. Right? They're everywhere. The world is littered with bad leaders. But remember, you can't always choose who leads you, but you can choose who you will follow. Hater's going to hate. Herod's going to be Herod. But you don't have to let these people influence your soul. Jesus is the kind of leader whom you can allow to have influence in your life. Do you see him? He gets rejected by his hometown, and he does not retaliate. He has the authority, and he gives it away. He has power, and he shares it. He has the ability to do anything he wants, and he chooses to serve with compassion. He he has the power to condemn us to hell, and he chooses to forgive us instead. Have you ever known another leader like this one? He's amazing. Now check this out. This is brilliant what Mark does. Jesus still needs to debrief with his disciples, doesn't he? He hasn't had that meeting yet. He needs to. So what does he do? Instead of chasing the crowd away, Jesus decides to use this moment to actually teach his disciples a very important lesson about serving him. 
So, so here's what happens. Jesus ministers to this crowd, and then notice what he says in verse 36. He says, uh, boy, I'm really concerned. These people are hungry. You know, um, or actually the disciples asked Jesus, hey, Jesus, uh, you need to send these people away because they're hungry and they've got to go get some food and it's late. And look at what Jesus says in verse 37. You give them something to eat. Okay, now they're staring at a crowd of 4,000 plus people. And, the, and Jesus has just told the disciples, you give them something to eat. Now don't forget, these are the same men who earlier in chapter 6 were out doing miracles and chasing demons. Okay? These same, that's, they're coming off of that experience. And Jesus says to them, you give them something to eat. So now Jesus is just continuing it. Hey guys, you, you want to you do another cool miracle? Let me give you the chance to do another cool miracle. How about this? Feed all these people. And the disciples do what you and I are thinking. There ain't no way I got the money to afford that. Jesus, I can't pay for that. It's impossible, 4,000 people. And Jesus says, well, how much do you have? What do you have? It's reminiscent of what God says to Moses at the burning bush, doesn't he? God, I can't do that. God goes, well, what's in your hand, Moses? The stick. Well, give me the stick. And God did amazing miracles with that, didn't he? Same kind of idea. The disciple, Jesus goes, hey, uh, why don't you do this? I can't do this, Jesus. That's impossible. Well, what do you have? Uh, we had a couple of loaves of bread and a few fish. Jesus goes, well, give me that. I love this. And then what does Jesus do? He looks up. He gives thanks. He multiplies the loaves and the fishes. But notice, though, in verse 41, verse 41, who it was who delivered the food to the people. It was the disciples. So Jesus is very much involving the disciples in this miracle, is he not? And do you see what's happening here? Um, who does the miracle work behind the scenes? God. Like, who is the one actually multiplying the bread? Who's doing the miracle? Well, God is. But who's the face of the miracle? We are. Really? Yes. That's how this works, friends. There's nothing special about you and me. There really isn't. But the God who uses me? <laughs> That's a whole other story. See, you might, be, you might be the teacher. You might be the life group leader. You might be the worship leader. You might be the one shaking hands on a Sunday morning. You might be the one swinging the hammer as you fix somebody's house or something. You might be the one that's the face of it. But if God is at work in you and through you, friends, that's a miracle work. And great things can be done with it. We need to learn that it must be God at work in me. It can't be me doing the work. Because Jesus is more than willing to put you and me in some pretty intense situations to bring glory to his name. But if you and I don't freak out, you know, which is what we tend to do, if we can just remain calm, stay cool, and say, okay, Jesus, you're doing something. If you say you're going to do it, then I'll trust that you're going to do it, and I'll be the face of it. You can use my hands, you can use my feet, you can use my mouth if you'd like, but you've got to be the one that does it, Jesus. Does that make sense? 
Chapter 6 then ends with a vivid illustration of this. Mark's not done telling us what Jesus is doing as he debriefs with his guys. So there's one more story in Mark chapter 6, and it's this other story where Jesus is walking on the water. And we know this. We're probably all familiar with Jesus walking on the water story. But do you see it in the context? That's what I want us to see today. Because fresh from this experience of feeding the crowd of 5,000 people, look at what verse 45 says. Jesus immediately, it says immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Do you catch the word made? Jesus made He forced them to get into a boat. So Jesus is doing something here, isn't he? This is not casual. This is not, hey, let's just go to the other side. Nope, Jesus is still teaching his guys, isn't he? And so he says, I got got another lesson here. We just finished feeding the 4,000 people. You just did all this. And the boys are pretty, I'm sure they must have been pretty excited about that. Can you imagine how exciting that must have been? Like as they're passing out the food and it's going, 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 going. And they know what's happening, but they're right in the middle of it all. So Jesus, when that's all over, makes them get into a boat. Forces them into a boat. You go over there and I'm going to go over here. And now Jesus is on the mountainside praying And the disciples are out in the boat on the lake. And look at what verse 47 says. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on the land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. (laughs) He was about to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. What is it about chapter 6 and ghosts? But uh, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and they were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and he said, Take courage, it's I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. They were completely amazed for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus, and it starts all over again. They ran throughout the whole region, carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was, and people were chasing him. And they begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. So the whole thing starts over again, doesn't it? Boy, Jesus in these crowds, he can't seem to get a break, can he? They're following him, chasing him down. But do you see what Jesus is doing? This is, a, a deep, this is the debriefing session that Jesus was not able to have with the disciples before. Do you see the flow of thought in chapter 6? Jesus sends out the disciples, giving them his power to, and authority to do miracles. Then we have this backstory on Herod, who's a really creepy guy. But he's typical of what we've come to expect in human leaders. And then the disciples return from their mission trip. And Jesus wants to debrief with them, but he can't because the crowd gets in the way. And rather than get upset, Jesus is moved with compassion towards the crowd. And he uses the opportunity to further train his disciples by involving them in the multiplication of the bread. 
And then Jesus forces them to get into a boat all by themselves, where they end up straining at the oars because they're all alone in the boat. They're alone, and they're straining. They can't do it until Jesus strolls by, and he gets in their boat, and immediately the strain is over, and they get to the other side, and ministry continues. Isn't that amazing? Left to their own power, left to their own power, the disciples strain at the oars. But when Jesus is present, the power flows and things get done. And this is what Mark is trying to show us. We don't do, we don't work for Jesus. We work with Jesus. It's a very, very important distinction. See, working for Jesus is how worldly leadership works. The leader makes decisions and the rest of us have to follow. That's how that goes. But Jesus does not operate that way. Jesus doesn't boss you around. We don't work for Jesus. We work with Jesus. He shares the leadership with us, and he invites us to work with him. And my friend, if you're straining at the oars, then it can only mean one thing. You're not working with Jesus. That's what that means. Because if he's in the boat, he's working, he's doing the work. You're the face of it, but he's doing the work. And if you're doing it for him, you're doing it without him, and you'll find yourself straining at the oars. You've left Jesus behind somewhere, and you need to go back and get him, because it'll make it a lot better if you do. And you and I come to, I think, two choices this morning, just as we close. I mean, worship team, you can come if you'd like. I think I want to apply this. We need to apply this to two people. The first, the first person is this. Is Jesus the kind of person whom you would follow? I mean, perhaps you believe in Jesus. I'm guessing most, if not all of us in this room, believe and would say that we believe in Jesus. But are you following him? And has Mark shown you from chapter 6 that Jesus is someone worth following, that you would want to follow? Is he the kind of leader that you would want in your life, the kind of shepherd that you would want? One who has all the power and all the authority and yet uses it to have compassion on you. One who is patient with you. When you blow it, he's patient. He doesn't kick you to the curb. I'm done with you. He stays with you. He's patient. One who's actually willing to allow you to go and do things in his name. In his name. Knowing full well that you will probably fail in the process. But he's going to use that to train you, to teach you, to develop you, to grow you. See? Is he not the kind of leader that you would want to follow? Allow it to have influence in your life. I hope that you've seen that today. But maybe the second person is you this morning. You're a follower of Jesus. And you say, yeah, I know what it is to follow him. And I've done that before. I've seen that. I've led a life group or I've taught a class or I've done ministry before. And I have seen how Jesus uses me just like that. I know that. I know what that is. And then I've been in the boat straining at the oars before. I know what that is too. So, so this is your experience. But maybe 
lately you find yourself straining at the oars. You're finding it's, you've lost the joy, the joy of service. The, the fun is gone. You've even thought about quitting because it's just not, it's just not fun anymore. It's getting hard. And I, I want to suggest to you this morning that perhaps it's because, well, you're in the boat without Jesus. You need to invite Jesus back into your boat. Let him lead. Maybe you need to repent. Somewhere along the way, you ditched him and you started doing it for him and not with him. Listen, that doesn't mean that it's not hard. I mean, can you see the disciples were, they fed the 4,000 people. I'm thinking that was not easy for them. What do you think? I don't think that was a breeze. Oh, well, it was a lot of work, but it was, also, it was also risky. I mean, Jesus told them to divide the crowd up and to have them sit down. And they did that before the food was multiplied. Do you see the risk in that? The disciples are out front. Hey, everybody, we're getting you organized. We're getting ready to eat. Well, what are we eating? Uh, well, I don't know yet, but just sit down. We'll get you food. See, there's risk involved in a faith walk with Jesus. So I'm not suggesting that following Jesus is just a bed of roses and it's smooth sailing all the time. I am saying that there's power in it. And, and I can tell you, I know the difference in my own life. I know when I'm straining at the oars by myself, and I know when Jesus is working through me. And you do too, the second person that we're talking to today. So maybe today's the day that you say, okay, Jesus, I'm back with you. I'm sorry for uh, going off in my own strength my own abilities and my own ingenuity and my own creativity and I'm just going to rest now in you and if anything good happens in my life group today it's because of you not because I'm such a great life group leader if anything happens good in my class today it's not because I'm such a great teacher it's because of you right you hear me amen okay I think that's what the Lord is saying to us today. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Thanks for listening today. If you'd like more encouragement or information about New River Church, check us out at newriverchurch.org.